Hello and welcome. This episode of the Skiff Meetings podcast is all about how meeting professionals need to speak the language of the C-suite. My name is Miguel Nevsh and I'm the editor-in-chief of Skiff Meetings and I'm excited to be speaking with David Kleiman, the co-founder of Event Leaders Exchange and owner of the Kleiman Group. In this episode, we talk about that real need for understanding business objectives, something that every meeting professional should really be interested in. We also cover how event program consolidation is linked with corporate culture. We talk about why community and belonging is what makes events great, regardless of how senior the participants are. We talk about neurodiversity and how this may change the way meeting experiences work. And we talk about what's top of mind for senior event leaders, including new workforce developments, sustainability, and the politics of meetings. Hope you enjoy listening to this conversation and I invite you to check out the other episodes of the podcast. You can find them on our website or by subscribing through your favorite podcast service. for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the event. Uh, sorry, not the event manager podcast. This episode of the Skiff Meetings podcast recently rebranded. And I'm delighted to have my, as my guest today, David Kleiman, the owner of the Kleiman Group and co-founder of Event Leaders Exchange. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Miguel. A pleasure to be with you. Looking forward to chatting. Absolutely. David, we've known each other for quite a while now through MPI mainly. I think MPI, WC and such events and also IMEX events and those things. And you were chairman or chairperson uh, of the board of MPI way before I was involved on the board. I was 100 years ago. <laughs> the youngest chairperson, I believe, ever. Or I think it's you still hold that uh, that claim. Actually, them, you know what? For the record, I have been advised that while I had been told at the time that I was the youngest, that false information has been corrected. Oh, wow. And I've since learned that I am the second youngest okay. uh, international chairman, but it was quite a long time, back in the mid-90s. But I have maintained my MPI commitment, and uh, it is one of the centerpieces of my career in terms of my engagement activities. Great. And I'd love to start by actually just talking a little bit, you know, quickly. I don't want to spend too much time there, but talking a little bit about your career in events, you know, how you found sure. the the events or the meetings industry, however you wish to call it, and how you've uh, then developed the Climate Group. Because I think you, I believe you've been in business as a uh, an entrepreneur or solopreneur. I, you, you let me know what you prefer, but for is it 20, 20 years, years now? now? Actually, this is our my 20th year. I'd say the quick backstory, and I'm sitting here in my office in Tucson, Arizona, and I have a bookcase with a lifetime of the National Geographic on this bookcase. And I grew up as a boy reading the National Geographic and as a young man, just fascinated 
by the stories that were in there of different societies and cultures, and also, truthfully, by the travel ads, by the airlines and the shipping companies and the cities that would advertise in the geographic. And the the very, very quick story is um, when I got out of high school, I went on the road for what was planning to be a summer with a backpack and it ended up being almost three years of traveling around the world with very, very little money and lots of adventure. And I got bit by travel, tourism, cultural experiences, came back to the US, went to university and got out. And I thought, what the heck am I gonna do now? And I walked into an iconic hotel in New York, the Plaza Hotel, and asked for a job. And lo and behold, they gave it to me. And I got a very lucky break. One year later, I landed in international sales and I was in Rio de Janeiro making sales calls as a very green, young 20s international sales guy. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Fast forward six years at the hotel and a client hired me out in a very quick, very sudden, unexpected way. And I became an event planner, a corporate meeting professional working for a big insurance company that later got bought by a German insurance giant, Allianz. And I ended up spending close to two decades there planning events along the way, uh, was very involved in MPI, my MPI leadership role. And then there I was in my mid-40s and thought, my God, I've been doing this a long time. What am I going to do? And I thought I could go out and strike out on my own. And there I was founding the Climbing Group. Best decision I ever made. And I wanted to uh, just dig in a little bit to the climbing group. You, you, you run a very specific sort of set of events and you have very specific clients. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Basically, what I do is work with tourism organizations, DMOs, CVBs, hotel companies, tourism organizations, doing a couple of things, creating and facilitating customer advisory boards, also known as think tanks doing deep dive economic development research and working with tourism leaders, coaching them on trends in the industry and running their businesses. So you absolutely defined it well, that is quite specific, quite a niche business, just a few of us doing this. And we, um, we are all good friends and we compete against each other, but it is a, a, a niche industry without a doubt. Absolutely. And thank you for taking me through that journey with the National Geographic, because I have an interesting story in my family. My grandfather helped National Geographic take aerial photos of Mozambique in the wow. 50s. I probably then, have them right here on my shelves. Yeah, you, you may do. And then he was gifted um, a kind of lifetime subscription to National Geographic. So I also grew up with all these National Geographic magazines, all compiled very neatly by year and kind of, you know, like these very nice binders. And I just remember flicking exactly through those. Exactly the way I have yeah. them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so great memory there. 
Um, so thank you for taking us through that. And 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 I think one of the things um, I wanted to cover, which I always ask, is just kind of a, a funny question, but also a serious question, is how do you explain to family and friends what you do, uh, the ones that aren't involved in the industry? Yeah, it's so true because um, we are a mystery, our industry, even though just in North America, travel and tourism is in excess of a trillion with a T dollar economic impact industry, we are misunderstood and miscategorized. I, I tell my family and friends that I am a researcher and a trend hunter in the tourism and meeting event space. And I do that by facilitating think tanks and focus groups and discussion groups that are multi-day deep dive discussions about ways in which tourism suppliers can better serve their marketplace and their customers. I like it. You're definitely using some, some buzzwords there and some words that I think people will understand and kind of bring it back home. Right? And so when we talk about the meetings industry, uh, events, incentive, travel, trade shows, um, I'm sure you've been to some great events and some not so yes. great events and some not so great events. Are there kind of key things that in your mind really make the difference? You know, is it numbers? Is it marketing? Is it people? You know, what is it that in your mind kind of is, is a key factor to, to making an event go from, you know, an okay event to actually a really good one? It, it's a great question. I think there's some table stakes which are important, but not as important as what I will follow up with the table stakes of it's got to work logistically. You can't put a thousand people in a space that really only holds 300. So the logistics have to work, the flow, the setup, but much more importantly, and what makes an event truly memorable in my mind is when there is a sense, a genuine sense of community and belonging. And when that happens, it becomes irresistible and sticky and magnetic. And that happens in a lot of different ways. It's not just that everybody should be the same. It's that when people show up for an event, that they are welcomed for who they are. And it might be that there's great diversity of people from not just physical or social or economic diversity, but from an interpersonal point of view. Not everybody takes in information and experiences the same way. When an event can produce an experience that is so inclusive and belonging that everyone feels that they have been included and that they have embraced the experience in a way that's meaningful to them. That's when you get that rocket's red glare of this was a remarkable event. Love it. I'm glad I asked. I think that's a, a really good way to encapsulate that. And just for the record, I mean, what would you say would be the, the number of events you go to that actually are able to achieve that? I mean, oh, like as a rough wow. kind of guidance. So pre-COVID, 
remember that pre-COVID. I it probably, sounds like a strange place now, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so in 19, excuse me, in 2019, in, in 2019, I probably attended 40, 45 events a year. And I would say that a handful, 10, maybe hit the mark as we come out, hopefully on the other side of the pandemic in the new reality, um, they, they, you know, certainly I'm attending more and more events and I've been just in 2023, I was at PCMA. I've been to a couple of meetings that I've been responsible for, including ELX last week, you know, not, I think I've never been to one single meeting where from top to bottom, it was perfection because as in life, nothing is truly perfect, but many meetings hit the mark from start to finish and maybe just have a few areas of improvement in between. And um, there, I think we're all learning. We're all embracing these things that make meetings more uh, more remarkable, but we're still on a path of improvement and enhancement. For sure. And I think with such a varied and wide experience in event planning, it's, it's a tough crowd or you are part of a tough oh, crowd. Yes. So tell us a little bit about ELX. I know you're co-founder of the Event Leaders Exchange. Uh, what is it and, and why does it exist? Yeah. So um, ELX, Event Leaders Exchange, was the germination of an idea in the summer of 2021. So in the peak of the COVID pandemic, Karina uh, Bauer from IMEX introduced me to Mark Brewster, CEO of Explory. We took a, a quick 30-minute Zoom call, um, not really knowing what was going to come out of it. And out of that came the germ of an idea to create exactly what ELX has become, a new community of practice specifically for the apex corporate event leaders of large multinational corporations who are running complex event portfolios for their corporations. And what we identified on that first phone call back in the summer of 2021 was that there was a void of community that these apex leaders that sat at the peak of the event organizations for these large multinational corporations were um, didn't really have a community that they could go to and share ideas, bring problems to, and source solutions. And so I quickly tested that idea with about a dozen uh, deeply embedded colleagues working for those uh, corporations that I had these deeply embedded multi-decade relationships where I tested this idea and they all came to the conclusion that if we could create this new community of practice, which is specifically a non-sales community, there are no sales pitches. This is the community 
talking to one another to identify issues, to share solutions, and to ideate new solutions that are uh, anonymized and shared within the community. And we formed that community with, I think we had a dozen or so at first. Now we're at 70 and we're growing quickly. We've, we interview, vet, and if they qualify and we have strict membership criteria, then we invite them to join. And the caveat is they must, if they join, they must engage. So it's not a passive membership. You can't just join and there's no fee to join and then let it sit on the side. These members all engage and they have to bring thought leadership or a problem. We have a, a, a new member who's been engaged for less than a month who is at the genesis of consolidating a multinational SMMP, strategic management program for a multi, a large multinational corporation, but they're at the beginning stages. We have others who have been, who have very mature SMMP or sustainability or whatever they, they want to bring as thought leadership. It's not that they have to be expert, but they have to be willing to engage. And this, frankly, the ELX community has grown incrementally. And again, we're vetting and adding people almost every day to the community. And we had a Congress last week in Chicago, happy to talk about a little bit of what went on there. And uh, that, that's the quick backstory of ELX. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. Fascinating. Before we go into the Congress, I wanted to touch a little bit on, you know, I often go to IMEX or MPI. Those are the events that are, I think I have the most, I'm most sure. familiar with. Um, but some of the conversations we have is, is the more senior people don't tend to participate in a lot of sessions. Yes. And I hear often this idea that, oh, it's not really for me. It's a little bit you know, too basic, or it's maybe not just not the type of content that is that is kind of right for those senior people. Is is the kind of crux of the concept of the ELX to to service those people that that you know can't find their content that they're looking for in those types of kind of larger gatherings? Yeah, I think that's part of it. But we are not looking to replace SEMO or MPI or PCMA or GBTA any of those. ELX is positioned to complement those organizations. And I was very mindful of that at the very beginning. I reached out to Sheriff Karamat at PCMA, to Paul Vandeventer at MPI, to uh, all the major event organizations and shared what we were doing and wanting to be really clear. 
we are not a trade association. We are a community of practice. And we know that these other organizations serve a purpose and do that really well. We are looking to create a small group. I think, you know, we're at 70 now. I think that if we grow to the low hundreds over the next two years or so, that's probably where we will get. But we are not in a numbers game. We are in the, we are single mindedly focused on a community of the senior most leaders that benefit those people first and foremost. We are member first. And when I say member, we do not charge for these people to be part of it. We have a small group of partners, supplier partners, that help us fund this. And those partners show up at ELX, not in a sales capacity, but in a thought leadership capacity. Because we know, and the partners know, and certainly the members know, you can't sell to this level of corporate event leaders. These corporate event leaders, they want relationships and solutions, not let me tell you how great my venue or my hotel company or my XYZ is. That will fail. But when a vendor shows up and talks about their sustainability focus or their DEI and B focus, then you've got their attention. I think that's really interesting. And do you think that that's, is that more or or kind of, does that increase because these people are so senior and their event portfolio is so large that kind of needs to sell or not sell, if you will, but be you know a friend or, or a part of their network first rather than um, a kind of a salesperson? Is that more significant here than, than to kind of in a more generic kind of a meeting professional role? I, I truly think it is. You know, it's not to say that uh, company A, that senior leader, isn't reviewing a contract or making a site selection. They may be, but that's more likely done at a level below them. They're running typically, broadly, a SMMP program or a vast organization. I mean, we have, uh, we believe right now the organization that has the largest portfolio of meetings is in the thousands, in the high thousands. So the person running that isn't doing site selection. They're running this vast complex organization and reporting to the C-suite. What, what they need are those relationships with the senior suppliers. They don't need to know that somebody has a ballroom that can seat 3,000. Yeah, I think that that's a very fair point. And I'm glad you brought up the, the C-suite because I know that this is something that you've been talking about for a long time, the importance yes. of planners really talking in the language of the C-suite, right? Um, such an important kind of component that I think a lot of planners and a lot of media, I think also are guilty of not talking in that language, right? Using uh more of a planning language rather than a business language.
Yep. And, and I will say just really briefly when, so when I was at Fireman's Fund as a director of corporate events, I did that for 10 years of my almost two decades there. The way that I got into senior leadership was specifically by talking the language of the C-suite and I and understanding what our business objectives were. And that helped me be a better, a better director of events and travel. But I was able to get the entry into being the VP of corporate communications, reporting directly to the CEO because of my knowledge of the industry and of our industry. And, and to, to know the language of the C-suite was in, instrumental to that. Yep, I, thought, I don't think we can stress that enough. So I'm glad we, we had a chance to, to talk about that. So let's jump in on the Congress. Um, did you have 70 members in attendance? No, no, no. no. We, um, we, we, uh, we have 70 members total. Mm -hmm. And of that, we had um, just a little less than 40 members attended the meeting and then ELX leaders and our small group of suppliers. So we had originally, when we planned this seven months ago, we had thought we'd be 40 total. And so we we were uh, in, uh, I think, 56 people total attended. Uh, of course, we had a few last minute cancellations. We had one Dallas ice storm who couldn't get out of DFW, one person who woke up with the flu. But, um, you know, it's not a numbers game. It's a quality game. And it was quite quite exceptional, exceeded our expectations in every way. And the attendees said the same thing. Great to hear. And I think that matches pretty much what you were saying about the, the belonging and the group. You know, that really makes events great. So yeah. I know you can't talk about individuals and individual companies, and that's absolutely fine. But I'd love sure. to kind of get a feeling of what you heard uh, what's what's really concerning these these real global planners particularly things that you found surprising, you know, things that maybe you came in and you weren't expecting. I think those are the ones that, that would probably be more interested in, but give us a, a kind of overall picture first, maybe. Yeah, um, I'd say one of the most inter interesting uh, topics that came out of ELX last week, and I will say it didn't surprise me because I've been very involved with the companies that presented this, at ELX, but the concept of neurodiversity and the impact on the event space was really an aha moment during the Congress. And when I talk about that, you know, we long talk within business and within the, in the event space about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but adding to that belonging. And this concept of neurodiversity and how that impacts event experience. And so there are some organizations that are embracing this at the C-suite level and down and putting significant resources around this. And that deep dive into this 
discussion of neurodiversity and the impact on the event space was breathtaking. And I'd say, fasten your seatbelts because this is going to change the way the event space delivers the event experience. And, you know, it, it touch, it's so broad and it touches the neurodiversity spectrum and gets down to levels that are often invisible. Think of someone who is colorblind attending your meeting and you have colors in your event space that might direct people and not being able to uh, embrace that and use that completely invisible to the event planner. Um, think about uh, hearing and the way people hear things, let alone personality traits of someone who's extremely extroverted or extremely introverted or someone that is light sensitive or, um, you know, on and on and on. And so that, that was a very, very interesting uh, finding and discussion at ELX. And there are others as well. Please tell us more. I think that's that's one topic we're definitely covering. We have uh, Megan Henschel from Google speaking at our next event on the 22nd of February. So Great. that is a, a key topic that we are covering. Yes. So we're, we're interested and, and in exploring she that. is a true thought leader uh, on this topic. Um, so event program consolidation, uh, some people call it SMMP, strategic meeting management programs. We had a lot of open space time dedicated to any topic that the members in real time wanted to discuss privately and rising to the top of. So these are literally a room set up and members would stand up and have 30 or 60 seconds to articulate, I want to lead a group for 20 minutes about this topic. And they would harvest members to come and talk about that. The number one topic was SMMP or event program consolidation. And it ran the gamut from I'm brand new in this and I'm trying to crack the code and create consolidation in my company to I've been doing this for 20 years. I have a really um, mature consolidation program. How do I take it to the next step? This, people said, and as late as this morning, uh, people were emailing me who had attended the Congress. We'd like to spend a full day talking about this. You know, here we had 60 minute or 90 minute sessions, people were like, no, I need a full day to talk about this. So even though SMMP has been around a long time, I mean, that's what I was hired in the mid 90s to do, uh, excuse, yeah, in the early 90s to do at Fireman's Fund. It's been around for decades. It still is something top of mind because there's uh, you know, corporations have a wide spectrum of how they have embraced this. So certainly event program consolidation, SMMP, very much top of mind. So just to dig in on that particular topic, um, 
as you mentioned, it's been around for a long time. How has it evolved or, or what were you hearing that's different? You know, is this a, you know, economic uncertainties driving companies to try to cut costs kind of conversation? Is that why it's so important right now? Or are yeah, there I, other factors? I think, I think that's one factor, but I, I would say that it starts with corporate culture and every corporate culture is different. So you might have a corporation that is, um, uh, let's just say, very employee-driven, very free, very quote-unquote modern, and doesn't put those kind of barriers or boxes around corporate policy, allows division leaders or department leaders to manage their budgets and just kind of figure it out. I mean, that's one corporate culture. And for them, consolidation of travel and meetings might be antithetical. But then, oh, the pandemic came along and economics changed and there's external factors and they may be under pressure from shareholders or owners or whoever it is to be more controlling in a certain way. So that might be one corporate culture imperative. You might have a highly centralized corporate culture where this type of policy procedure and standards is just a matter of course. And so then how do you mature that, make it uh, relevant and active and meaningful and appropriate in a large corporation. There's definitely not one right answer, but I think it starts with corporate culture. And it's because every corporate culture is unique. Fascinating. It's I have to admit, it's not something I've thought a lot about that link. But yeah, like now that you mention it, it makes a lot of sense. Any other topics come to mind that you think were, were sort of top of mind at the Congress? And, and this won't be a surprise, but sustainability and the impact on the meeting and events ecosystem, absolutely. And for us in planning ELX, and we had two remarkably capable professional event planners who were responsible for the execution of the meeting, everything we did started with a discussion of what's the sustainability impact. And that filtered then to the plan, the partner discussions, our sponsors, our partners were very interested in sharing thought leadership around that. And the corporate attendees, very interested. And again, on that wide scale of you have some that are deep into this and really monitor and well beyond carbon impact of air travel, you know, and really getting down to the micro level on the impact events have on it. And you have others that are just beginning the process. And so we spent a lot of time on that. We talked about the politics of meetings and um, more specific to the United States of America, even though we had uh, many handfuls of European members at this meeting, but specific to the U.S. because it's become such an such an such an issue around human rights and equal opportunity and the way 
There is a perception and a reality of the way specific cities, states, and frankly, countries are handling this. So, you know, whether you're talking about World Cup being in Qatar or uh, Roe v. Wade in the United States and the impact that some planners perceive or a re reality of the way states are handling that, we dove into that. And uh, again, not one right answer. Uh, Jeff Freeman, the CEO of U.S. Travel Association, did a 15-minute TED Talk kind of discussion followed by about half an hour of Q&A on, on this topic and other topics around travel in general. And it was very illuminating. Fascinating. Yeah, that's one of the topics that we've been paying a lot of attention to, of course. And yeah, I think it's really interesting that that came up. I'm yeah. glad you had the opportunity to, to listen to US travel also discuss that. Yeah. So those were, you know, at the highest level. We also did a benchmarking deep dive study um, that was specific to the ecosystem, the members of ELX. And so they provided an enormous amount of confidential data that was plugged into a benchmarking study and that was provided back to them individually. And while I can't comment on that study specific to any organizations, I know uh, you'll be talking with Sophie Holt, uh, also a managing director of ELX, who really owns that benchmarking study and she can brief you on that. But that, that benchmarking study was a very illuminating and also something specifically designed for these ELX members to be able to share with their C-suite to, to prove in a qualitative, quantitative way where their event portfolio stands as compared to other like organizations and other parallel industries. So that, that was a real benefit of their involvement in ELX. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, now I understand the, the individual nature of that delivery. So that, that makes sense. Um, I just wanted to ask, one of the topics we've covered a lot is the hybrid workforce. You know, the idea that yeah. so much of the workforce is remote. Is that something that came up and in, in, in any way? And, and if so, was it discussed? You know, how was it discussed? Yeah, I'd say it, it wasn't a core topic, but certainly workforce in general was something that we spoke about at length. And within that, the concept of hybrid, remote, the new 2023 plus reality. And it, it came, uh, I think, in a couple of different ways, certainly attracting and retaining competent event professionals and what that looks like going forward. And one of the conversations was uh, really landing on, you know, it's no longer just the usual suspects. Finding somebody that's a, a great traditional event planner that rose up through the ranks, that knows not just dates, rates, and space, and how to uh, uh, produce an effective meeting logistically and from a content-wise, but who are the new event professionals that might 
look at event design from a neurodiversity point of view or from a music point of view or from a tactile point of view and not, not just focusing on the usual suspects and then on the supply side, certainly the topic of who's performing the functions when events are contracted in a destination or a venue and that the workforce, the, the lack of, of workforce uh, 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 development and who's going to fill those jobs is certainly top of mind. Absolutely. Definitely something we're covering a lot. And I'm hearing that a lot, that whole future-proofing the industry in, in many ways yeah. is, is something that is, uh, is, is reoccurring. And we have to expand. You know, we, I, I, I just said it can't be just the usual suspects. And, you know, hotel companies are looking at before the pandemic, a hotel company wouldn't even talk to somebody who was just make up an example, a housekeeper that couldn't work 35 or 40 hours a week, five days a week. Now, hotel companies are talking to a housekeeper that might want to work three hour shifts between 11 and two, three days a week. They're happy to talk to those people to fill a gap, but that, that's a real shift. And then extrapolate the housekeeper example to you know, whatever other job, both on the planning side or on the supply side, and you have a whole new reality of what workforce looks like. Very interesting. So wanted to start wrapping up, but also Please. thank you for talking uh, about the Congress. I think it's really interesting and especially to understand what these global events professionals are, are really focusing on. We talked a little bit about challenges in the industry. We talked about you know speaking the language of the C-suite, but I wanted to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk big picture and wanted sure. to ask you, you know, what, what, what do you think, if you, if you could kind of change things in the industry, what would you really want to change or what would you want the industry to be able to change or shift in any way? I would love to see an industry that doesn't just look like me, that looks like the broad spectrum of what planet Earth is like. And I look around at a lot of older white guys in this industry, and that's what it was, but that's not what it is. This industry needs to truly reflect at every level what planet Earth looks like. And it is broad and it is diverse and we need to get there. I like that. I think that's a, an excellent message. And, um, you know, so many all male white panels uh, are, are, are on stage in our industry and we really need to make sure that uh, there is much bigger diversity because it's it's good for everybody, right? It's good for the it's industry. Good it's good for, for everybody. Absolutely. It's good for the old white guys and it's good for <laughs> it's good for everyone. If we're only old white guys attending events created by old white guys, then 
you know, it's that's not going to okay, last very long. No, exactly. <laughs> that's not going to work. David, absolute pleasure talking to you. Wanted to get your recommendation for someone else who would be um, maybe just as good as a guest at, the, at our podcast or on the podcast. Oh, thank you. You know, someone who jumps to mind that every time I speak with him, and here we are, another male, I have to maybe punt on that, but uh, Stephen Rose is head of global business services at Siemens in Munich. His brilliant point of view on the event industry fascinates me. He is responsible for a global portfolio and he is really focused on looking beyond the event industry for examples of ways Siemens can deliver and produce events that are truly impactful. He and I just had a conversation on what we can learn from the gaming industry. I'm not talking about casino gaming. I'm talking about online gaming. And uh, his brilliance on that and his curiosity, his fascination on that are, are really great. Um, and just in respect for the non-white guys, I'm going to give you uh, Carrie Abernathy at Altria. She runs the event program. She is a young, brilliant female leader who I truly believe is on her way to the C-suite because of her brilliance. So Carrie and Stephen have great conversations with them. Perfect. I appreciate the recommendations and I look forward to connecting with them. I think that would, they would both make great guests. David, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for sharing your experience, your knowledge and your insights with us today. And I uh, wish you all the best and hopefully we'll see more about, we'll hear more about ELX uh, very soon and we'll dive into the report as well. So looking forward to that. Thank you, David. Miguel, a pleasure talking with you.